Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. How long can a human run without stopping? What's the most weight a human can deadlift? Will someone ever run a four-minute mile in less than three minutes and 30 seconds? And will someone ever run a marathon in less than two hours? My guest explores these questions in his latest book, and along the way uncovers insights to all the factors that go into pushing the limits of human athletic performance. His name is Alex Hutchinson, and he's the author of the book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Today on the show, Alex and I discuss the history of the science of human performance and the three competing theories about how to measure and improve it. Alex first explains the interplay between physiology and psychology when it comes to humans pushing themselves. We then spend the rest of the conversation discussing various factors that have influence on our performance, including pain, thirst, muscle strength, diet, and mental fatigue. Alex then shares insights in the latest research on how you can manipulate these factors to run faster and longer and lift heavier. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is endure. Alex Hutchinson, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Brett. I, uh, I'm glad to be here. So you got a book out called Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And it is about how we're able to push ourselves to do these amazing physical feats. And we'll talk about some of the, the ones you highlight in the book. But before we do that, can you tell us a bit about your background and how it inspired you to research the science of human performance and endurance? Yeah, so uh, these days I call myself a, a science journalist, or sometimes if I'm being really specific, I'm a, a science of endurance journalist. But that, that all started probably 20 years ago. I was a competitive track and field athlete. I ran for the Canadian national team for a number of years. And it, there was this sort of ongoing mystery of was I really approaching my limits? And there was this one night where I ran, a, I'd, I'd been trying to break four minutes for 1500 meters, which is a sort of decent high school time for, for a number of years. Uh, for like four years, I'd been stuck just over that barrier. And one day I was running a race where the timekeeper was calling out the sp splits that were wrong. And he, he tricked me basically accidentally into thinking I was running super fast. And I ran a nine second personal best which totally changed the trajectory of my running career. And basically since that moment, it, and, and nothing had changed in my physical training. So there was this, this moment where uh, a mental change created a, a, a total difference in my apparent physical endurance. So I've been sort of wondering about that for a long time. And when I became a journalist about 10 years later, I started to dig into the, the, the research about the science of endurance, trying to understand what, what it was that sets limits. And, and that's kind of 
that's the long and winding answer, but it was a long and winding road that, that sort of got me to this point. So and as we'll see in this conversation is that uh, it's, we really don't know. We have some ideas, but some of it, it's, it's confounding. So let's talk about sort of the overall, give like a big picture view. You talk about in the book, there's three competing theories that determines the limits of human endurance. The first is a, a physical limit, and that is primarily VO2 max. Now, I'm sure our listeners have heard that, that acronym thrown around a lot. So what exactly is VO2 max, and why have physiologists thought that that's the thing that determines how long you can run or push yourself physically? Yeah, so VO2 max, so the, the science definition is that it's, it's the maximum amount of oxygen that you can breathe in from the air, use your heart to, to pump to the muscles, extract from, the, from your blood, and use it to, to help fuel aerobic exercise. So it's this maximum aerobic quantity. I mean, and it goes back about a century, almost a century now, to, to when we were fir- scientists were first figuring out how muscles actually work. And, and there was this dawning realization that, oh, you know, if you, if you take an individual muscle fiber, it's basically, we can understand, it's just like a machine, and we can understand what the rules that govern this machine are. are. And so there was this hope that, that we could extrapolate that up to the human body and think of the body literally the guy who invented vo2 max wrote these articles for scientific american american saying the human body is a machine and we can calculate its limits so vo2 max definitely no one ever thought the vo2 max was the only factor dictating endurance but they thought it was a big factor that tells you so at a certain point the, the harder i run the more oxygen i i need right and and the harder i start to breathe but at a certain point, you just can't breathe any harder and you can't bring any more oxygen in. And the idea was that that's what determines the limits of your endurance, that you reach this, this maximum or this plateau in oxygen. And so that, that turned out to be a, a really influential idea philosophically for most of the 20th century. Right. So I mean, when did people start figuring out, well, VO2 max really isn't the, the determining factor of you know, human performance? Well, some of the first skepticism was in the in the late seventies and early eighties, and I, you know, I, there's a, a scientist named Tim Noakes in South Africa who's been both tremendously influential and tremendously controversial about a number of topics. And you know, I, I visited him uh, six or seven years ago, and I asked him like, when did you first start having doubts about VO2 max? And he said, well, we had just started our lab in the early eighties, and he was testing a lot of elite athletes, and he he so he brought in two very good athletes, one of whom was a, a sub four minute miler of one of the best milers that South Africa had ever produced. And the other was a woman who had won a very famous ultra marathon in South Africa, which is, uh, you know, some, I think it's 55 miles long or something like, like that, a totally different race. So she, she was a very slow miler, but a good long distance runner. And he was a very good miler. And he tested them both in the same day and they both had exactly the same VO2 max. And he thought, well, if this test can't tell the difference between this, like, six foot two sprinting, uh, almost, you know, middle distance runner and this tiny petite ultra runner, then obviously there's something we're not understanding here. And so I, I would say in the last 30 years, there's been doubts. And in the last 20 years, there's been controversy. And in the last 10 years, people have kind of uh, moved away and, and, from the idea that VO2 max, it's almost the pendulum sometimes swings too far. And now people are like, oh, VO2 max is meaningless. And that's not true. VO2 max has meaning. It's just not the the sort of sometimes one way of thinking it is thinking of it is if I have a bucket and I want to know how much water can fit in that bucket, 
we we understand geometry well enough to know that if I know how tall the bucket is and how wide it is, I know exactly how much water it will hold. And it doesn't matter how hard the bucket tries, it can't hold more water than that. And we now understand, and so we, there was the hope that VO2 max would, 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 would uh, allow us to calculate the sort of capacity of, the, of human endurance in the same way. And now we understand that we're not buckets, we're more like balloons. You can, you can kind of squeeze more air or more water into the balloon. And the balloon's capacity isn't infinite. You can't, you, you can't fit the whole world in the balloon. But it's also very hard to define a limit of how much air you can squeeze into a balloon. At some point, it's going to pop, but you don't really know when in advance. Okay, so speaking of Tim Noakes, that leads us to the next theories of what allows it to push yourself. And these are more psychological. And Tim Noakes, he's the guy that developed the central governor theory. What is that? Yeah, so so he's – and this is probably – when you think of alternatives to the human machine view of endurance – the most famous one is this central governor theory, which was proposed by Noakes in the in the late 1990s. And, and basically, what he argues is that the brain is protecting you in some way. We had there are physical limits, but if you reach those physical limits, you would die because your heart wouldn't be getting enough oxygen. If you know, if you were really limited by a lack of oxygen, your heart would would stop bump, pumping and and you would die. That's maybe a little bit hyperbolic, but the point is, he he argues that we never re- quite reach our limits, and that's because the brain is looking out for you in all sorts of different ways. It's monitoring your temperature. It's monitoring, you know, your brain oxygen levels. And it's it's just, and, and if it detects that things are getting a little too crazy, it automatically sort of throttles down the signals that are going from your brain to your muscles. So you're still trying just as hard, but you're not getting as much force out of your muscles. And that's to make sure, you know, you, you never quite hit those limits. And that that theory has been really influential, but also controversial because, the obvious question is okay let's 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 find a brain scanner and let's see the central governor but it it's not that simple there isn't a part of the brain called the central governor so so that that theory has has been been attacked or or debated a lot in the in the last few years well if there's no like single part of the, they they have ideas that parts of the brain that might play a role in this central governor absolutely and and the, you know the sort of interesting thing is the more advanced these studies get, the more brain areas get implicated. So there's some really interesting studies looking at, for instance, the insular cortex, which is responsible for monitoring signals from within the body. So it's a logical place for uh, you know f- for this function to to, to to be located. But it there, there's all sorts of other parts of the brain that are involved with you know assessing future risk or monitoring the outside environment, and so. You know, I've been following this area of research really closely, and and maybe five years ago, if you'd asked me, I would have said, "Oh, it's pretty cool. They're really they're really zeroing in on the insular cortex and its links to the to, to the motor cortex, which is what sends the signals out to, to your muscles." And I think that's where it, where it's going to be. But uh, uh, you know, as as time has gone on, more studies come out. It's like, okay, but you also have to include the prefrontal cortex, and you also have to include the anterior cingulate cortex, which you know assesses your perception of effort. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, hang on, we've now listed all regions of the brain. So, is there a is there a central governor, or is this just is this a behavior that describes how our brains work to make sure that we don't push ourselves absolutely to our limits? And you know, one of the one of the sort of vivid images that Noakes uses, he when he gives talks, he'll put up a slide of just after the finish of the 1996 Olympic marathon, which is when a South, a South African runner won it. So he likes that picture. But the guy who came second was, I think, from South Korea and maybe just three seconds behind. And the two of them are jogging around the track, you know, waving with their flags. 
And, and he says, well, look, what do you notice about the guy in second place? He's, he's not dead. And you think, you think about that. If you're, if you're finishing a marathon, you're three seconds from being immortal as the Olympic champion. Of course, you're going to be trying as hard as you can. This guy didn't leave anything in reserve. At least he didn't try not to. But obviously, he still had enough reserve. His heart was still working and his muscles were still working because he crossed the line and he kept jogging. Well, so if there's a, a central governor there and there's a reserve, I mean, it's accessible, right? So does Noakes think you can override the central governor like through training? Or you just are you hamstrung by that no matter what you do? Yeah, so there's no doubt that that reserve is negotiable and it's accessible to different degrees by different people. It's hard to like... You know, when I asked him, so what do you do? How, how do you how do you how do you get to this reserve? One of his answers was, you know what? I think the great coaches of the world—they're already—they always work on the brain. So he described he, he was before he became a, a sort of running guru. He was actually a very accomplished collegiate rower in South Africa, and he 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 said one of his turning points was this workout that he did as a college rower. They they would usually do six times. 500 meter pull or something like that as hard as they could and once they finished it one day and the coach said okay go back and do another one and they were like what we can't do another one we just went as hard as we could and he said and the coach said no 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 you have another one in you so go back and do another one and they did another one in fact they did four more i think at, until they had done 10 and it was one of those watershed moments of all of them realizing oh yeah we had pushed as hard as we could but it turns out there was still a reserve there and so there's that you know maybe that's a little wishy-washy, but Noakes Noakes would argue that good coaches help athletes learn what they're capable of and learn how to access that reserve. And I think the process of regular training also teaches us that naturally. You know, you when you first start an uh, you know an activity like running, you, and you get all out of breath and your legs are burning, and you think, man, I went as hard as I could. But gradually, you learn that those signals aren't really that signal doesn't mean you're about to die. It means that it's just a warning that you can't continue indefinitely. You can start to push that, those limits back a little bit gradually. And I don't, you know, part of my book, the last part of my book is, as you know, is, is kind of asking the question, are there shortcuts to that process? Can we learn to access those reserves without the hard work? And the answer to that is maybe, but the, I think the most reliable way is still go through that long process while you're training your body, you're also training your mind. And if you're conscious of that, you can make sure to bring out those lessons and help be aware of the ways that sometimes we hold ourselves back or we trick ourselves into thinking that we've reached a limit when it's really not. Okay, so we've talked about the first theory, VO2 max, which is the body is basically a machine and you can figure out those limits and push them to those limits. The second theory is psychological. It's the central governor theory developed by Noakes. There's a third theory also psychological, but this one is developed by an Italian guy called Mark, named Marcoa. Marcora? Is his name? Marcora. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about his theory and how, how it's different from the central governor theory. Yeah. So this, this is Samuel Marcora. And he, his basic claim is that the central governor is a super complicated idea that relies on all these subconscious control mechanisms and, you know, it relies on your brain knowing in advance how far you're going to go or what the what the temperature is going to be and he says look it, it must it's simpler than that there's not all these subconscious mechanisms we we go until it feels too hard relative to our level of motivation for a given task and when it's harder than we want to we either slow down or stop and that, that you know that sounds sort of obvious it's like that, that's not a scientific theory that's you know like grade two you know pseudo psychology but but it's actually a lot deeper than than, than it might appear at first glance because what he's saying is that you know, VO2 max, 
lactate, you know, oxygen consumption, glycogen stores, all that stuff just feeds into something more important, which is your sense of effort. How hard does it feel? And how hard it feels when when it reaches when you reaches a maximum, when when you're pushing as hard as you're willing to push or hard as you're able to push, then you, you either have to slow down or stop. And and the reason that's actually what 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 grabbed me about this theory or what 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 struck me as remarkable is that he said, look, here's a prediction based on this theory. If it's true that your sense of effort is the final arbiter as to how long how far you can push, then we should be able to change your endurance just by working on the mind without affecting the body. So and I, I first saw him at a conference about seven years ago, and he said, and he was giving a talk. And as an aside, when he was explaining his theory, he said, look, I should be able to sit people down at a computer for you know a few months, have them do some computer tasks that work on specific mental traits like response inhibition, which is the, the, the thing that you work on in the marshmallow test or the thing you test with the, the marshmallow test. And if I improve your response inhibition, I should be able to improve your marathon time without doing any physical training. And I thought that sounds just, that sounds crazy. If you're willing to make a crazy statement like that, you should test it. And, and that's what he's done with some remarkable results. And so I've come around to the idea that Marcora's theory actually has some very interesting implications that so far seem to be supported by some of his experiments. He did another experiment with subliminal messages. He, he, was, he had cyclists doing a ride to exhaustion and he flashed up images 16 milliseconds at a time. So the cyclists weren't even aware that there were images, but he flashed up smiling faces and frowning faces. And when, the, when it was a smiling face, the cyclists were able to push longer before they reached exhaustion. And in his explanation is that the smile, you know, we sort of, we see a smile, it puts us at ease and the sense of ease kind of bleeds into our sense that things are okay and not as hard as we, we might think of them. And so our sense of effort is a little bit lower and we're able to keep pushing. So I don't know what the final answer or the right answer is, but I, I find Marcora's theoretical work and also the predictions that he's able to make based on this very, seemingly very th- simple theory to, to be really interesting. So this the Marcora thing, you, there's a, I'm, I'm familiar, somewhat familiar with it. With weight training, I sometimes do what's called RPE training. Basically, you know, the my coach assigns me a program and he says it should be an RPE eight, which means like rate of perceived effort. Right. So it should feel like an eight, which means that I could do maybe two more reps. But what's interesting about RPE is that it changes on a day-to-day basis. Like you said, like some days it just like a weight, maybe like 400 pounds feels like an eight. Then another day it could feel like a nine and nothing's really changed, but it's, it, I don't know. It's just, it's crazy how effort really does like how hard something feels determines whether I can get a weight up or not. Well, that's exactly it. And so Marcora would say RPE is what counts. And and so you might say, why is lifting 400 pounds an eight one day and a nine the next day? And there are a lot of potential explanations. It could be you didn't sleep well. It could be that you're stressed about a very exciting interview with Alex Hutchinson, or it could be, you know, like there, there's all sorts of possibilities that could be tweaking your uh, your sense of perceived effort. But the point is, if you're if you're trying to figure out what your limits are, that RPE is is what matters. Like if if you you can calculate, we could go and measure your muscles and you know do do physiological tests. But ultimately, the the determinant of whether you're going to be able to do eight reps or ten reps this weight is how you feel. And so Marcora's point is that's not a defect in the system. That's not like a problem. That's actually a sign that RPE or perceived effort is exactly what ultimately determines our limits. But he would also argue you can ignore that perceived effort, right? Just like. You'd say just you know 
how bad do you want it would be like the question. Like, if it feels really hard, if you just really, really want to accomplish this thing, if you want to do a four-minute mile or whatever, if you want it bad enough, you can overcome that feeling perceived effort and actually push beyond a bit, right? Up to a point, yeah. So in Marcora's model, there's actually two. There's the sort of yin and the yang. There's effort is, is you know, as it climbs, you're, you're more likely to quit. Motivation is what determines the ceiling. So let's say you're thinking of effort on a one to 10 scale. You know, if, if I go out, you know, I, I went out, it was pretty, uh, this morning and I did a, a workout with a friend, a, a running workout. It was snowy and slushy and, uh, you know, it was not the, 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 the greatest day. And so the, the level I was willing to get to was maybe an eight out of 10. I wasn't willing to go 10 out of 10 on this crappy slushy day when it's not a super important workout and there's cars that are trying to run me over and so on. If this was the Olympics this morning, I would have pushed to 9.9999999 out of 10, or maybe 10 out of 10. So most of us in most situations are not really reaching 10 out of 10. So in that sense, the how bad do you want it is, how high are you willing to go on this rating scale? But once you're, you know, there's a point at which ratings, your your, your effort reaches a maximum. And in, you know, in scientific studies, that's, they, they pay volunteers in scientific studies, not because they're, they're, you know, they, they're out of the goodness of their heart. They want to make sure that people are maximally motivated so that when they're taking these tests, they're willing to go up to an effort of 10 out of 10. And once you are at an effort of 10 out of 10, there's, there's not really any further you can push no matter how badly you, t- you want it. So it's, it's only up to a point. We, we, do reach, we do reach limits eventually. So what's just about Marcoro's theory is that the psychological can, has this influence on the physical, right? And what I thought was interesting that research you highlight is how even mental fatigue, right? If you just had a, a rough day at work, you, you know, stressful, stress day with the kids or whatever, that can actually diminish physical performance. Even though like you didn't really exert yourself physically, the fact that you had to endure this mental fatigue, that's going to hamper your ability to perform your run or your workout, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's, that's to me, that was, again, one of the really most fascinating results that got me interested in, in his work because it's, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you know, if, if, if I'm doing like complicated mental arithmetic or stressful negotiations or something all day, and then I go and do a workout, definitely like I, I'm going to notice a, a, a decrement in my performance. But if you, if you say, okay, so why is that? How do, how do I explain that in the context of sort of textbook physiology? It's not obvious because if I've been sitting at my desk all day, you know, you'd think I'd be raring to go and ready to, and, and I, I used to notice this. Like I would, I would meet friends to do a workout at, you know, five o'clock. And if I had a story to do, if I was on deadline till like 445, I would always have a terrible workout, even though my, my job is like the least physically demanding job in history. So it's, it's obvious in a, in, in an intuitive sense, but it's, it's not hard. It's not easy to explain scientifically. And, and so what Marcora would say is that, yeah, you know, your muscles haven't changed at all. All that's happened is that because you're mentally fatigued, everything feels a little harder. You know, it's one point harder on the sort of perceived effort scale. And that's exactly what he found. And he did a study where it's like, you know, the people either had to do this computer task where you're sitting at a a screen and tapping buttons, depending on which letters flash on the screen. It's not hard, but you have to focus. And so it takes your attention versus just watching a, a documentary about trains or something like that. And then they had to cycle to exhaustion at a, at a, at a given pace. And right from the very start, so it's not just something that shows up at the point where they quit. Right from the, as soon as they started pedaling, they had to say, okay, how hard is this? And the people who were mentally tired, immediately they were rating it as sort of five out of 10 rather than four out of 10. 
Then halfway through the test, they're at like seven out of 10 rather than six out of 10. And then everyone quits when they reach 10 or, you know, 9.5 or whatever, depending, you know, roughly 10. It's just that the people who started at a higher rating of perceived exertion, uh, they're reaching that, that they're, they're hitting 10 earlier because not because their muscles are more tired or there's more lactic acid or there's not enough oxygen or anything like that, just simply because it feels harder because their brain's a little tired. We'll talk a little bit later, like what Marcoro thinks you can do to train, you know, basically increase your, your body or your, your, I don't know what you want to call it, your, the motivation, your mental capacity to keep going even when you're fatigued. But let's talk, you highlight in the book that there's, there is this like this ardent strident debate between Marcora's camp and Noak's camp. I mean, why, why, why the acrimony between the two? Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and I, I wish it wasn't because I, I think both sides or both groups have done really really fascinating research. And you know, anytime I talk to scientists from from one camp, I come away thinking, man, these guys are amazing. That they must be right. Then I'll talk to the other camp, and and it'll be like, oh no, those guys are full of crap. So it's it, it's difficult when the, when science gets kind of polarized like this. Ultimately. You know, it's. I think it's worth remembering that science is a is a human endeavor. Uh, as 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 one of the one of the scientists I was speaking to, the sort of guy in the middle. That's what he he told me. He said, "You just got to remember, it's a human endeavor. People have egos and motivation to to advance their own ideas, and you know, no one takes kindly to be when it's suggested that their ideas are wrong or are not original. And so sometimes the debates are as much personal as they are scientific. You know, and th- there there are some some actual differences in the two theories in terms of what's proposed and, and how it's supposed to work. And ultimately, experiments are going to decide which theory, if any, if either of them is the right one. My suspicion is that it's going to end up being kind of a mix of both. And I think both of them are kind of moving towards each other in terms of, uh, they, they both now recognize that effort is really a, a key, a really, really important parameter. So even the scientists who, who've been developing Noakes's ideas they would now argue the way the brain keeps track of you know whether your body is in danger is through sense of effort. That sense of effort is is this warning signal that tells you you'd better slow down because we're getting pretty close to ten out of ten. So, yeah, it's at, at the end of the day, uh, <laughs> in any field, you're never going to have everyone getting along with with everyone else. And, and I guess the, the, just the one other thing to mention on this is that it's really hard to challenge established theories like. In any in in science and in you know in in any field, if to, to be the one who says you know what I think we've been doing this wrong for the last century is really hard and you get a lot of pushback, and so the, I think there's something to the fact that the people who've successfully proposed these new new ideas they have to have a certain personality that's willing to push hard and to be abrasive and to to put forward new ideas despite criticism, and so as a result, when you get two people or two groups who who are both putting forward new ideas, they they maybe don't necessarily have the 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 temperament to want to cooperate. They're 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 just naturally inclined to push and to kind of question everything. So let's talk about some of the before we get to the mental things. That's interesting. But what's also I what I thought was interesting, very useful for me is the physiological factors that you highlight in the book that contribute to our sense of effort, whether something feels hard or not. And one interesting one was pain, right? So if you're doing a hard, a long run, an ultra marathon, mid-distance run, or you're a competitive lifter, you're going to feel pain when you're training. So 
how does, I mean, I guess it makes sense. I mean, when you, when something hurts, you want to stop, but the question is, can you train yourself to ignore that pain? Yeah. So, so first thing I'd say about pain is that, you know, if you'd asked me when I was a runner, well, why, you know, why do you slow down in the third lap of a mile race? I would say, well, it hurts. It really, really, really hurts. And, and, uh, you know, we sort of naturally think of endurance as a, or, or, you know, when you're really pushing your limits, it's a painful task. And one of the things that Marcora argues, and I think he's he's generally right, is that you have to learn to separate the feelings of pain and effort. And definitely, if you're running a marathon, it, it hurts. But is the pain really what holds you back? Or is it the effort that it feels too hard that you don't go faster, not because you're worried about hurting a little more, but actually, but because you just can't, it feels too hard. And so he's done some interesting studies where, you know, so first of all, he'll he'll have a subject dip their hand. There's a classic pain test called the cold presser test. Basically, it's, it's a measure of how how long you can hold your hand in an ice bucket until the pain gets too much. And so he'll have them, have people dip their hand in an ice bucket and rate their sense of pain over time until they reach 10 out of 10 and have to pull it out. So then they know what maximum pain feels like. Then he has them do a, a cycling test to exhaustion, and he has them rate both their pain and their effort. And what he finds is that the point where they get to the end of the get where they they're on the bike and they say, "Okay, I can't keep this pace anymore. I have to stop. I cannot continue." At that point, they're rating their effort very close to ten out of ten, but their pain might only be six out of ten. Now, six out of ten hurts, but it sh- but it suggests that what limits us usually is not pain; it's it's effort. So, from Marcora's perspective, pain is pain is kind of it's there and it, it hurts, but it's not that important. There are other lines of evidence that suggest that pain does play some sort of role in, in in our limits. And in fact, there's a bunch of evidence showing that athletes are better at tolerating pain than non-athletes, and that this isn't necessarily something they're born with. It's something you can train. And there was one there, there was a recent study out of a university in England where they compared two different cycling training programs. One was a sort of steady, just ride at a steady pace, and the other was a high-intensity interval program, which is involves enduring a bunch of discomfort, a, a bunch of pain. And they, they designed the programs to be exactly the same in terms of how much physical improvement they, they produce. So, that, so both groups improved their VO2 max by exactly the same amount. But the high-intensity interval group increased their pain tolerance more and also increased their performance more. So it was like they both had the same physiological improvement. But by, by being forced to cope with a painful stimulus, they were able to endure a little bit more discomfort during a, during a competition. And so one way to think of that is that pain isn't the be all and end all. You don't quit because it's, because it, because the pain is just absolutely so excruciating, but pain is something that contributes to your sense of effort. And so if something is six out of 10 on pain, it's not limiting you directly, but it's also making your effort maybe a point or half a point higher. So it's getting you to that, that maximum effort a little bit more quickly. So when you say pain tolerance, it's not that the athlete feels pain less, like the pain still feels like a seven. He just has trained themselves to ignore that and push through it. And like, again, effort becomes the limiting factor. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, so there's a bunch of studies on athletes and what they all find is, let's say, let's say you give people electric shocks with progressively increasing intensity on their arm or something. And athletes and non-athletes will both say, okay, that hurts at the same point. They'll say like, yeah, it's the, the, the point where that's pain, pain threshold, the or, or a pain sensitivity rather. They detect pain in the same way. It's just that as you keep turning up the, the shocks, the non-athletes are the first ones to say, okay, I, I want to stop now. And the athletes will keep going for, for 
uh, in some cases, substantially longer. And so no one really knows the full answer as to how that happens. But the, the prevailing thinking is that it's not that there's some physiological change that athletes have some sort of magical anti-pain molecule circulating in their body. It, it's just a question of psychological coping mechanism, mechanisms. Athletes, because they train in ways that are uncomfortable, they're used to on a daily basis dealing with some discomfort and they understand that pain doesn't always doesn't doesn't mean your arm's going to fall off it just means it just hurts it's just it's information for your brain and so they're willing to tolerate that information a little bit longer until it really gets intense and then they say okay yeah like pain still affects them it's just they've they've learned to cope and that's actually one of the most transferable things i think about athletic training uh, or or and playing sports is that you you learn these psychological coping me- mechanisms without even being aware of it that that allow you to handle discomfort whether it's you know being stuck in an uncomfortable plane seat you know airplane seat for 4 hours or whether it's you know running the last 5 miles of a marathon the, the coping skills i think are, are really transferable so another factor is physiological factors the muscles themselves and this was i thought the experiments done you know throughout the history of this science was interesting like one of the interesting ones where they just take frog legs and just put electricity through them and just watch them twitch up and down until they'd stop to see you know how long muscle tissue could uh, can move. So what does the research say about that? How long can muscles contract fully before they just they won't move anymore? Yeah, so 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 the answer is longer than you will ever be able to to inflict damage on them. So yeah, the, again the the frog leg experiments they started in the late 1800s and the classic ones were in the early 1900s. And they're zapping frog legs and finding that, yeah, eventually you get to this point where the, the legs don't even twitch anymore. And it's like, oh, so that's what fatigue is. That's, But the, the problem is the frog legs aren't attached to anything. And they later did experiments with, with what's called decerebrate cats, which is basically cats whose brains had been removed. And they found the same thing. You know, you could, you could make them twitch until their muscles wouldn't move anymore. But in reality, we never get to that point because of what we've been talking about. The brain is like, Nah, let's. We're not going to let you twitch that muscle anymore. And so, one of the one, there's a guy named Guillaume Millet, who's uh, he's a French researcher. He's currently at the University of Calgary, and he's also an accomplished ultra endurance athlete. He, you know, he was a an ultra runner and a, a national team cross country skier. And he got interested in this topic about 15 years ago. And he started. And and, and there's there's techniques you can use that are sort of similar to this uh, <laughs> zapping the frog's legs. You can use them on humans now, so you can. First of all, you, you can you can ask someone to say, let's say you want to test leg muscles. You can say, okay, contract your leg muscle or push out with your leg muscles as, as hard as you can. So then you know what the maximum voluntary contraction is. Then you can say, okay, we're going to apply an electrical jolt to the nerve at the top of your leg, and, and we're going to make your leg twitch just like the frog legs, frog's legs, and we're going to see how how much how strongly you can twitch that muscle. And then we're going to take a magnetic stimulator and apply it to your brain right at the region that where, where the nerves go down to the, to, to the leg muscle. And we're going to make it twitch there. So then we're going to be able to find out where is the fatigue? Is it, is it in your brain, like from the voluntary desire to twitch? Is it in the muscle? Can the muscle not twitch? Or is it somewhere in the spinal cord? Because there's, there's a lot of sort of potential fatigue mechanisms in the spinal cord where, where the nerve signal is traveling down. And so he said, okay, well, let's see. He started out with experiments where it's like, okay, let's put someone on a treadmill for four hours and let's see how much muscle fatigue versus central fatigue, which is brain or spinal cord, there is. Let's, let's compare by comparing the voluntary maximum with, with, the, with the electrically stimulated maximum. And they said, okay, four hours isn't enough. Let's try eight hours. Let's try 12 hours. 
let's try. Then he went to a, a race in France called, or in, in Europe called the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, which is, uh, <laughs> it's something like, uh, I think the winning time this year was just under 20 hours. And it's up and down. You climb sort of more than the, the height of Everest and go back down. So it's a really long race. And at this point, he's still finding, yeah, the, the muscles get tired, but they don't get totally maxed out. So then he said, well, that's not extreme enough. Let, so there's another trail race called the Tour des Géants, which is, it takes about, for, for, for the guys they were studying, it takes at least, you know, 80 hours. Sometimes the winners are 80, 80 to 100 hours to, to run this race. And they don't, they, they sleep almost not at all. They basically go for, you know, three or four days straight, just running it the whole time. And the shocking result was that the actual amount of fatigue in the muscles was less after this 80-hour race than it was after the 20-hour race or the 25-hour race. And so this was a sort of headline result. It's like, oh, you're less tired if after you run 200 miles through the mountains than, than, you, than when you run 100 miles through the mountains. But the, the real lesson was that no matter how far you go, because your brain is, is kind of holding the brakes, you never get to that, that, that point like the frog's legs where there's just no more twitch left in your muscle. And in fact, if you go long enough, it's so long that you have to slow down just to get there. And so you, you actually get a little bit of less, little bit less fatigue. So the maximum amount of fatigue in your muscles is actually from quite a short duration. It might even be from just a couple minutes. You can push so hard that you'll get a high level of muscle fatigue, but you never reach that point where the muscles can't twitch anymore. So you can always keep going. You can always keep your legs moving. Yeah. yeah. If you, yeah, try, I, I, I'm sure if I was to, you know, stand at the end of the Tel des Géants and say, Hey, you can, you can keep going. You can run another mile. I might get, you know, some, some negative comments from the people because the legs aren't the limiting factor, but other things are, are, are starting to, to fail and you're probably, you know, sleep deprived and your brain just wants to stop and your legs are probably sore too but they can still twitch if you uh if you if you're if you're if a lion jumps out from behind the tree you'll discover you can you can still sprint down the down the street so related to muscles is how we fuel the fuel our muscles and this has been a topic of just a lot of controversy and debate in the past i'd say 15 years so when i was growing up carb loading was all the rage right like before a football game before a run you know, my mom was like, here's a big bowl of pasta. You got to eat this so you have carbs for running. But then, you know, of course, the whole paleo things happened in the past 15 years or so. And, you know, saying in endurance runners to pick this up. No, actually, we want go high fat, low carb because, you know, we want to be an aerobic, you know, using oxygen, not glycogen. So what does the research actually say about high fat, low carb diets and human performance and endurance? So the, the short answer is it doesn't say a whole lot. It's, you know, these are, are hard things to study. And so a lot of the arguments are, are, are not, really, uh, <laughs> not really based on scientific research, but more on just like, I tried this and it worked for me. Um, now, I should, I should emphasize that, you know, if a, if a lot of people say, I tried this and it worked for me, it's something you have to pay attention to and you have to think carefully about maybe there's something here. But like you said, the, the carb loading thing, which which really emerged in the in the '60s in Scandinavia, it it sort of became the dominant paradigm. And so, for a long time, people, including me, would have said, "There's no way you can do good endurance performance without good carbohydrate levels." And so, there were some studies in the in the '80s, for example, a few isolated studies 
that suggests that, hey, if you, if you take the time to adapt to a high-fat, low-carb diet, you, you can actually sustain your endurance pretty well. The evidence wasn't super strong or anything like that, but there were these studies and they got mostly ignored because the idea was, was so entrenched that carbs were the way to go. And what's happened over the last, I would say, five years is there's been an acceptance that that, 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 that the idea of a low-carb, high-fat diet was dismissed too quickly for endurance performance. That and that a lot of the studies that suggested there's that it was actually really bad for you, they were too short, or there were other flaws in the studies. So if you switch to a you know a high fat diet for a week and then try and do run a marathon or whatever, you're definitely going to have problems because your body hasn't fully adapted. So the the big question is what happens if you take longer, so that your body has really learned to uh, to make the best use possible of of your fat stores and. So there's there's two questions you can ask. One is is it is it possible to do this and have reasonable performance? And the other is is it better than the current carbohydrate-based approach? And I would say the big revolution to me has has been the, the idea that it is possible to go low carb, high fat and to have very good endurance performance. To to you know run marathons successfully, to run ultra marathons successfully. Uh, to do Ironman triathlons and so on, all the while while consuming virtually no carbohydrates, and that's a, that's a big surprise. And you know, it's it's been confirmed in some studies too. That there have been some studies at the Australian Institute of Sport that have shown that yeah, it is possible to to maintain performance in a relatively meaningful way. Whether it's better than carbs is <laughs> is is where I think the argument has gotten pushed a little farther than the evidence suggests. Um, and there's 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 definitely a bit of a food fight, if you will, among scientists for and against this idea, debating sort of subtleties of whether the efficiency is increased by a few percent or decreased by a few percent. But the bottom line, just to simplify it from my perspective, is nobody has shown that low-carb high-fat is better than carbs for most endurance performance. There's some evidence that it might be worse. Where the advantage might be is if you're talking about ultra-endurance performance, where you know, it's it's one thing to say, hey, just take in 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour and you will be fine. It's another thing to do that for 12 hours. It's very hard to keep choking down gels for 12 hours. So if you can s- switch to a, a fat-based fuel so that you don't have to eat as much during a long competition, that may well be an advantage in terms of avoiding stomach upset and things like that and just feeling better. So, so I'm definitely open to the idea that this low-carb, high-fat approach has some advantages for some people in certain contexts. If you look at the Olympic marathon or something like that, I I would be surprised if you found anyone really in history who's taken that approach. So so to me there's a long way to go before anyone can claim that it's it's better for competitive events of say three hours or less. Yeah, as you point out, when you're doing a competitive event, there's always at that end, you have that kick where you have to go really fast, right? You're doing that sprint and that requires, you're probably going to switch from an aerobic to anaerobic and that requires glycogen, which requires carbohydrates. So if you're doing a 5k, probably don't, you know, the uh, high fat, low carbs, not going to do much for you, but if you're doing an ultra marathon, definitely try that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, if you're in the tour de France, then it's a very, very long race, but every time there's a, uh, a breakaway every time there's a, a you know a, a significant hill climb you're having to dig deep and rely on carbohydrates and if you've sort of down regulated your ability to use carbohydrates 
you're just you're not going to be competitive. Now it's still debated. Some people still disagree and say that oh, you can still use your carbohydrates. You can have your cake and eat it too. But that's I think that that remains to be to be proven. And the other thing is, you know, like I guess we can look very narrowly at how does it affect your endurance, but you can also look more broadly at how does this fit in with your with your lifestyle. And so for some people going low carb high fat is, is is wonderful and it's really changed their lives and and that's great but you know i wouldn't recommend if someone is just looking for a, a performance boost to to have this radical overhaul of their lifestyle unless they're looking to do some sort of overhaul for other reasons because it's a it's a big ask to suddenly cut out all carbohydrates for something that may or may not help you in this one small facet of your life Right. And as you point out too, a lot of the big marathon runners are from Kenya and they pretty much just like eat corn porridge. It's, it's their diet. They're not yeah, doing they're, the high they're the definite uh, sort of ultimate example of it's like, you know, if you listen to sort of mainstream sports nutritionists these days, they're like, yeah, you need carbohydrates, but of course it's got to be complex, organic, vegetable, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, you got to eat high quality. Of course, we don't recommend sugar. And you look at what the Kenyan marathoners are eating, and they're getting like 20% of their calories from the sugar they pour into their tea, from the simple sugar that they pour into their tea and their uh, their porridge. <laughs> now, you know, their lifestyle is such that they seem to be able to, they seem to thrive off that. But it's, even I would like, <laughs> I don't think I would be able to, to eat that much sugar without, you know, feeling this tremendous sense of guilt, which maybe says something about our attitudes towards food in, in the West or something. Right. So related to to food is water, hydration. And that's another thing. Like in the past, I think 15 years, there's been this just debate. Like you, you if you're watching the news, one, you know, one year they're telling you, oh, you you need to drink eight gallons, you know, whatever, how many gallons of a gallon of water a day? And then the next, like, no, you actually don't need that much water because that's going to kill you. So what what's the science say? How much water do we really need? Particularly when we're competing in an endurance event or exercising. Yeah. So I would say the science says you need to drink as 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 much as you feel you need to drink, <laughs> and whether it's uh, you know, but sitting at your desk at the office or or while running a marathon. And as you said, this debate has gotten really polarized to to to, to where you know it's almost sort of caricature. One side is saying you know you basically have to have an IV hooked up to you at all times or you're going to die, and the other side is saying water is terrible. You're going to get water poisoning. You're going to get hyponatremia, which is this condition that can arise if you if you do drink too much water, although it's very rare. And you know both of these are kind of scare tactics. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. For the most part, in most contexts, we really don't need to worry at all about hydration, other than being aware that when you're thirsty, you should drink. That said, it's not that hydration is totally irrelevant. If you get severely dehydrated, you're, you are likely to have, you know, changes in your performance. And so you have to be aware. And there's some context where you, it's, you have to be more than just aware. You have to be planning ahead. If you're running a marathon, you can't just drink whenever you're thirsty because you can only drink when there's a water station. And, you, you know, and if you're running, you may not want to drink even though you're thirsty because it's uncomfortable to drink. So there's these situations where you do have to kind of be aware. But for the most part, if you are just simply making an effort to to listen to the signals from your body to, un, to to listen to the signals that for you know millions of years of evolution have made sure that we get enough water and if we fall behind on the amount of water we have we'll catch up with it later then you know you'll be okay and i and, you know one little stat that i like to cite is the first man to run sub 204 for a marathon was haley gaber selassie in 2008 and during that race he lost about 10% of his body weight he was, I think, 128 pounds when he started and something like 126, 116 when he finished. 
from dehydration. Now, you know, not all of us can do that, but but if the if if mild dehydration, if two percent dehydration was a problem, we wouldn't have these world record setting marathoners losing ten percent of their weight. So so I think the hydration message has been pushed a little harder than it needs to. And the the performance effects and also the sort of health effects are 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 not as severe as 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 thought because a lot of the studies are like, okay, we're gonna give you a diuretic, put you in a heat chamber for six hours, and then we're gonna test your performance. And it's like, oh look, you 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 didn't perform as well. It's like, well, that's not a real world situation. If I'm in if I'm in my office, if I'm hungry I'll, or if I'm thirsty, I'll drink. It's not like I'm being forced not to drink in some of these studies. So we've talked about some of the physiological factors that play into rate of you know rate of perceived effort. There's a lot more people can dig out in the book, but as you've discussed, like none of them really, like we, a lot of people think they matter and then they're going to make the difference in their training. But you basically the argument you're making is like, well, they don't actually make, make that much of a difference. And it all comes back to that, that mentality and that the psychological factors. So what can we do to train our brains so that even when things feel hard, we keep going, or we're able to push yourself even further before things start feeling hard, right? Like th- that, what happened to you, right? When you're with your run, where you thought you were running faster than you really were. So it, you thought it was easy, but it wasn't. So how can we do that in our own, um, whatever our, our activity is, whether it's running or weightlifting or whatever it is? Yeah. So let me, let me start with the caveat, which is I think the most powerful thing to do is to be aware of these things. And, you know, one of the studies that I found fascinating is investigating the effects of heat on cycling performance. And, you know, they put cyclists in a room where it was, you know, 100 degrees Fahrenheit. But in some cases, they rigged the thermometer so that it only read like 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And the cyclists went faster. And it's not that heat didn't have an effect. It still had some effect, but it had much less of of, of an effect. So there's always this, it's this halfway thing. It's not all in your head. You can't just pretend that heat doesn't exist, but the effects we feel are always greater than, or the effect, the the ultimate effect on our performance is always greater than pure physiology would suggest. There's always a mental component. And so if you're aware of that, I think you can choose to, to not, to kind of disobey some of the signals to say, yeah, I feel hot, but you know what? It doesn't mean I'm dying. It just means that I'm being warned that I'm hot. So that's the starting point is, is be aware that there's more. But there's also specific ways you can you can kind of try and strengthen certain kinds of mental muscle. And I, you know, I mentioned before the marshmallow test, which is this famous thing where they gave four year olds they said basically you can have one marshmallow now, or you can if you wait, you know, maybe 15 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. And then they tracked people who could the longer kids could wait at age four for the marshmallow for an extra marshmallow, the better they did in all sorts of you know life outcomes 20 or 30 years later in terms of you know, there's, there's studies linking this this sort of response inhibition, not just to things like uh, educational attainment and income, but also to like crack addiction and, and stuff like that. So response inhibition, being able to keep doing something when you don't want to, or to avoid doing something that you, you're not supposed to, to suppress your initial urge, which in the context of endurance is your initial urge is like, this, this is hard, I should stop, or I should slow down. If you can suppress that urge, you will be able to do better. So how can you train response inhibition? Well, there are there are certain computer tasks, these these things like something called the Stroop task, which are designed to measure cognitive traits like response inhibition. And so what some Samuel Marcora argued is like, okay, if you're doing this task which is supposed to measure response inhibition, that means you're using your response inhibition. 
and think about physical training. If I, you know, if I want to get faster at, or if I want to be able to lift a weight, a heavier weight, then what I should do is lift weights and make my arm tired and then let it recover and then lift more weights and let it recover. And by lifting that weight, I'll eventually be able to lift more weight. And so he applies the same logic to mental training. If you keep doing tasks that tax your response inhibition, your response inhibition should ultimately get better. And so you should be, you should increase your ability to, to stick at a task when it's uncomfortable and ultimately be able to sustain. Ultimately, what this will do is kind of reduce your perceived sense of effort because you're getting better at handling mental fatigue. And so he's done some studies for over the last three or four years. Uh, they were funded by the British Ministry of Defense because they, they felt like this would be pretty useful for soldiers who are you know in combat for sometimes a couple days at a time. And they've had intriguing results. It's like he, so he's found that you know, if you, you train people physically and you give half of them this additional brain training on the computer, and the, the people who get the brain training in, improve their physical performance by a far greater amount than the people who did just the, the, uh, the physical training. So there's a kind of proof of principle that you can specifically train the brain with these specific kinds of cognitive tasks. Now, you, you don't just do, go do the crossword puzzle. It's a, it's a very specifically chosen kind of cognitive task that attacks certain mental traits like response inhibition. And the, I, so I tried this out a couple of years ago before running a marathon. And, and, you know, my, you know, I wasn't doing a study, so I can't really assess whether it worked or not. But what I can say is, my God, those, those mental tasks are boring, like, and they're time consuming. So I found it a real challenge. So there's, there's a maybe gap between saying, this is what you can do, but it's not necessarily what I would, what I would recommend everyone rush out and, and start doing. Yeah, as you highlight in the books, this stuff, what he recommends doing, Marcora, is like you have to do these brain drain exercises for an hour and then go train. A lot of people don't have an hour of their time plus an hour to train. So I guess he's coming up with some ideas of things you can do while you're training to fatigue the brain to sort of cut down on the time. Yeah, so he has, he has a couple of ideas. Uh, one thing he said to me is like, look, from a practical perspective, one thing you could do is just embrace the idea of training when you're mental t- mentally tired sometimes. So, you know, personally, I, I, you know, I run most days and, I, uh, and, and do some other stuff too, lift weights and stuff like that. I do it almost always in the morning because that's when I feel fresh and it just feels more pleasant to me that way. And he's saying, like, look, it's uh, maybe if you do a workout, you know, after a long day of work or even, you know, after a night when you haven't slept as well as you'd like, that may... The, the, the results of the workout may seem worse physically, but you're actually training your brain. Like the mental, you know, sleep deprivation and mental fatigue, learning to push through that is is a mental training exercise. So in, a, in some ways, it's kind of a positive way of framing when you have a crappy workout. You're like, well, I was pretty stressed and tired, so my my time in the workout was crappy, but I, I sure as heck trained my brain today. <laughs> um, so So that's a kind of practical approach to keep in mind he's he's been developing an app uh or or working with an app developer to create a form of mental training that as far as i understand it it's sound based rather than like it's an auditory brain training app rather than one with a screen in front of you so it's something you could do you know have it on your phone and and be doing it while you're out training and hopefully not be be hit by a car in the process but so he's, he's working on trying to make this available but I think one key, and he's done some studies where you do the, the brain training task while you're, you know, sitting on a stationary bike. So you're combining the time of physical training and mental training. But personally, I, st- I, you know, I still have no interest in sitting on a stationary bike for my training. I'd rather be outside. So, you know, there's ways that, he, that he's trying to make it more accessible and ways that you can kind of work on this indirectly th- through your mental training. 
but it's still I, I think it's still like I guess I, I want to be cautious about overhyping it because it's it's still like early days yet and I, it would be good to see other labs reproduce the results because that was the other thing that I took from my own personal experiment with it it's like because you know I'm a busy guy too in some ways and it was not easy for me to find time to do this brain training and it would have felt a lot it was much harder to find time for brain training because of the voice in my head that was saying, this is ridiculous. Like, how is this going to help me run a faster marathon? So you, you kind of want to make sure that it's legit and really works before you, you try and invest a bunch of time in it. Well, Alex, there's a lot more we could talk about. I mean, there's a chapter about zapping your brain that we didn't get to. But uh, where can people go to find out more about the book and your work? So the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is sweat science, all one word. And my website is alexhutchinson.net. And both of those places will guide you to, you know, articles that I write about this topic and, and the book. And, and hopefully, you know, people will have been working on their mental endurance just by, just by listening to me ramble on the, on the podcast today. There you go. Well, Alex Hutchinson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Brett. My guest today was Alex Hutchinson. He's the author of the book, Endure. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at alexhutchinson.net. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash endure, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness at artofmanliness.com. While you're there, check out our podcast archives. We almost have over 400 episodes there in the archives. It's artofmanliness.com slash podcast. While you're there, make sure to subscribe via one of your favorite services, whether Stitcher, iTunes, whatever. And one thing else you can do to help us out, if you have a minute, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please share the show with others so that others can get the benefit from the art of manliness. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.